The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Is it Mueller time or is Mueller's time over? This is Thursday, November 8th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through that PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. With an incoming Democratic House ready to investigate and Robert Mueller nearly ready to release his report, Donald Trump has given Mueller a new boss, one who has criticized the Russia probe for going too far and one who suggested one way to stop it is cut off its funding. The Fox is now in charge of the hen house. With the expected firing of Jeff Sessions coming unexpectedly quickly after the election, Rod Rosenstein's future is uncertain, and the man in charge for now is Matt Whitaker, the aforementioned critic of the Mueller probe. Whitaker, a Trump loyalist, is now the acting attorney general. He now controls Bob Mueller's budget, and everything of importance Mueller wants to do has to go through Whitaker now. Trump says a permanent successor to Sessions will be named later. But when? Technically, Sessions, Trump's favorite whipping boy, resigned, but Sessions made it clear in his resignation letter that resignation came at the request of the president. Trump never forgave Sessions for recusing himself from an investigation in which Sessions himself was a person of interest. Unlike Sessions, Whitaker was not involved in the Trump campaign. Trump is afraid of Mueller and the new Congress and of what is about to come, and he's trying harder than ever to stop it. But Democrats, including new likely House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, are demanding Whitaker recuse himself because of his prejudice against the investigation and the conflict of interest that creates. And Democrats are calling on their Republican colleagues to join them in protecting Mueller and keeping his investigation independent. Delaware Senator Chris Coons tweeted that Trump's moves yesterday, firing Jeff Sessions and bypassing Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein as his successor in a normal succession, was, quote, an historic attack on the rule of law. And soon to control the House, Democrats say Trump will be held accountable. Branches of the U.S. government are about to go to war with each other. The first shots have already been fired. What you are about to witness may be more itchy and scratchy than check and balance. And it spills into our streets. Over a thousand protests are planned across the country at 5 p.m. local time today under the banner, Protect Mueller. After being shut out of national government for two years, Democrats now have a voice in Washington again and control of the House for the first time in eight years. One party no longer controls all of government, and Democrats have risen from the ashes. Americans have voted to adjust the steering of this country. As a group, voters seem to like Trump but want to keep him in check. They elected 35 Democrats to the House so it can go back to being the check and balance it is constitutionally supposed to be to provide oversight for executive branch agencies. That means investigations of a lot of things, from the administration response to Puerto Rico's Hurricane Maria to heavily investigated Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. It also means the House Intelligence Committee can now conduct a real investigation of the ties between the Trump campaign in Russia and Trump's reported use of unsecured phones monitored by China and others to complain to his friends about his troubles, including those concerning U.S. foreign policy. Voters rejected a Congress that gave tax cuts to the rich and threatened people's health care. A new Democratic Congress can reject the president's legislation, as opposed to its predecessor, which served as a rubber stamp for Trump. This is a huge development in multiple ways, and we'll cover all the big ones. 
It wasn't the blue tsunami Democrats quietly wished for. Even the blue wave wasn't as big as expected. But it was a blue wave, and it did bring big, big changes, despite a healthy-looking economy. Despite all the campaign noise, this week's election was about health care and Trump. But there is so much more to tell. Women, suburbanites, and college-educated white men who had voted for Trump in 16 voted against him in 18, pushing Democrats back into the picture. This election painted a clear picture of what lies ahead with Democrats winning in the cities and their suburbs where diverse people live closely together with populations that better reflect the entire country. And Republicans more dependent on older conservative whites. It's easy to see where the numbers are headed. So maybe this is more of a rolling wave that has not yet subsided. Democrats ran a diverse field of candidates and won the House. There were candidates and winners from the LGBT community, from African Americans and Hispanics and Muslims and Native Americans and young adults, independents, and people who don't normally vote. Leading the diversity was a record number of women running for office and a record number of them winning. More than 100 women have won seats in the House. Pennsylvania went from no women in Congress to four women in Congress. In New Jersey, Mikey Sherrill won by a bigger margin than did her state's other Democratic congressional winners, and she did it in a district that Trump won just two years ago. Women won two seats away from Republicans in Iowa. It was, ironically, also an election that made the Senate even more anti-abortion. Republicans gained seats in the Senate and pro-choice forces can no longer count on Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to be the votes that hold an anti-abortion agenda in check. It was Trump who had cost Republicans the House with his divisive rhetoric, but that same rhetoric gave him a bigger-than-expected win in the Senate, stopping the blue wave at the Senate's door. And now, more easily, the bolstered Republican Senate can keep confirming Trump's Supreme Court nominees. Vice President Mike Pence won't likely have to cast any deciding votes, assuming Democrats can stand as one despite their progressive versus moderate split. But it was women who favored a Democratic House 60% to 39, while men were split half backing Republicans, just 48% backing Democrats. And election night was a night of falling stars, or so it seemed. The Democratic candidates who'd drawn so much admiration, Beto O'Rourke, Andrew Gillum, and Stacey Abrams, appear to have come up short, but oh so close. Abrams is still refusing to concede until after the absentee ballots are counted. Likewise, Senator Bill Nelson in Florida is demanding a recount. Still, this kind of progress is significant since these candidates came that close in red states Texas, Florida, and Georgia, and it still portends a bright future for these rising stars, especially Beto O'Rourke. But in their gubernatorial defeats, Democrats missed a chance to win over two of the biggest swing states Trump would need for a 2020 run, Florida and Ohio. Governors play a big role in a president's re-election bid and in the campaigns of down-ticket candidates in the president's party. Democrats did flip seven governors' mansions, however, including dramatic wins in Kansas and Wisconsin. So what should we expect from this suddenly Democratic House in Washington? Well, they have plans. In the first month, Democrats hope to strengthen the Voting Rights Act to outlaw the gerrymandering of congressional districts and to push for other changes in campaign and ethics laws. That is job one. A close second is pushing for something Americans also want and desperately need, investment in our infrastructure, complete with jobs and a lowering of prescription drug prices. 
Those two things have gotten lip service from Trump. Now we'll see if he'll work with the Democratic House to make them happen. He says he'll work with the Democrats if they don't investigate him. So we appear to be looking at a total gridlock for two years. What Democrats won't be able to do is pursue some of the issues on which they ran, single-payer health care, affordable college, and a more restricted immigration service. Expect gridlock, especially in the face of congressional investigations of the president. Expect the first subpoenas in January, right after the new Congress is sworn in. Senate leader Mitch McConnell has expressed no interest in cooperation with the Democrats, and neither has Trump, who told reporters, I don't care, they can do whatever they want, and I can do whatever I want. Trump says he'll take a warlike posture if Democrats investigate him. Democrats say they'll begin their investigations as soon as they're sworn in. Fasten your seatbelts. And these two constitutional forces collide in a country that, as evidenced by this election, is more divided now than ever. The blue states got bluer. The red states got redder. Wall Street got greener, with the Dow soaring over 500 points yesterday on news of the Democrats taking the House and a check and balance on this government. Democrats will take control of all the powerful committees in the House. Democrat Adam Schiff pushes out Republican Devin Nunes as head of the House Intelligence Committee, which can now conduct a real investigation of the Trump-Russia connection. Democrat Elijah Cummings replaces Republican Trey Gowdy as head of the Oversight Committee, which was also investigating Trump-Russia, or was to have been investigating. Republican Bob Goodlatte, who chairs the Judiciary Committee that can investigate the Kavanaugh confirmation process, is also replaced by a Democrat. So what Democrats cannot deliver on the health care they promised, yet they can deliver something else their constituents want, investigations of Trump, his campaign, and his administration. Expect them to subpoena and get Trump's long-hidden tax returns, and not without a big fight. And in the course of their investigating, if evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors becomes overwhelming, the House will have no choice but to impeach. That will leave a Republican-controlled Senate to make a choice, to decide whether to convict him, forced to give their final answer on Donald Trump. But first, the investigations. And Democrats will have to choose their battles and their investigations carefully in a way the public supports. Newt Gingrich did not proceed cautiously in his pursuit of President Clinton, and it did not work out well for Republicans. With the election behind us, it's probably Mueller time. Contrary to repeated claims by Trump, it appears there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and that again, contrary to the president's claims, it is a crime. There is reason to believe that Trump operative Roger Stone, who's kept in touch with the Donald for years, is about to be indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller III. Two of the Russians indicted by Mueller have pointed toward Stone as someone who was in touch with the highest levels of the Trump campaign and the Russian hacker known as Guccifer 2.0. Stone himself says he believes he is about to be indicted and he started his own legal defense fund. If Trump associate Roger Stone is hit with criminal charges, it could mean serious consequences for Trump, the people around him, and perhaps even democracy itself. Mueller has already spoken with former Trump strategist Steve Bannon, who exchanged emails with Stone about the WikiLeaks dump of Democratic emails before the emails were published. Mueller's grand jury has already heard from other Stone associates, including one connected to WikiLeaks' Julian Assange, who published the Democratic emails stolen by Russian hackers. 
Mueller has interviewed Paul Manafort in at least nine day-long sessions. Manafort met with Russians just before the election, and Trump lied about it for as long as he could get away with that lie. And that brings us to the obstruction of justice case against the president, which is reportedly complete, shy of getting some answers from Trump himself. Mueller already has guilty pleas from Trump's campaign manager, his deputy campaign manager, his personal lawyer, his first national security advisor, and his former foreign policy advisor. It would appear the Russia investigation is about to prove it's not a hoax, as Trump claimed again yesterday. The storyline is approaching its climax. There are signs Mueller may be wrapping up his work, letting go of some staff members now, and handing investigations off to permanent prosecutors in New York and D.C. He still wants Trump to answer questions in some way or another. But the end could be just a few months or just a few weeks away. After laying low for two months of election campaigning, Mueller is about to move and Trump likely to react. That clash is where the threat to democracy lies now. Firing Rod Rosenstein and or Robert Mueller are still within the realm of possibilities, especially now that Sessions is gone. And an incoming Democratic-controlled House is ready to investigate that which has been ignored by its Republican predecessors. It would appear to be Mueller time. In another legal problem for Trump, a federal judge has ruled that an emoluments lawsuit against the president can go forward. The judge denied Trump's request to stay the lawsuit, which accuses him of profiting from foreign governments while in a position to benefit those foreign governments through U.S. foreign policy. To do so is in violation of the Constitution, and now a case arguing that can go forward. The judge has now given the plaintiffs, the Attorneys General of Maryland and D.C., 20 days to hand over the evidence that this president has breached the U.S. Constitution in the name of personal profit. To prove their case, those suing the president will need to see the Trump Organization's ledgers and probably Trump's long-hidden tax returns. Again, expect this president to react and in an unusual way. Do not expect the Democrats to go wild with these investigations, cautioned Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. You might be surprised to learn that I've always kind of liked former RNC chairman and current MSNBC analyst Michael Steele. Despite running the RNC, Steele was the first national Republican to confess to and apologize for the Republican Southern strategy, collectively defining the party's race-baiting tactics since the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. It's important to further note that prior to Steele, Republicans routinely denied any such strategy existed. Steele's apology was a big step toward eliminating it. Uh, Trump, of course, destroyed any chance of that. Likewise, I've never hated NBC's Brian Williams either. Early in the Trump administration, Williams was a strong anchor voice following Trump's daily corruption and indignities, going a long way to erasing the news anchor's, shall we say, veracity issues. However, both Williams and Steele during Tuesday night's midterm election coverage groaned at the notion that the Democrats should conduct robust oversight of the Trump administration's criminality. At one point late in the evening, after the Democrats appeared to secure the House of Representatives, Ari Melber reported that a Democrat, unclear who, announced the prospect of finally getting a look at Trump's mysteriously audited tax returns. Williams chided the idea of pursuing Trump too hastily. Later, Michael Steele joined the preemptive scolding, suggesting that tough oversight into Trump would play into Trump's hands. Cutting to the chase, we should sincerely hope the Democrats don't listen to Steele or some of the other cable news scolds. 
It's a perennial trap the D.C. media sets for the Dems. Standing up to the Republicans fighting fire is unserious and will drive voters away in two years. Now they've added a twist. Get tough with Trump and Trump will go crazy. So good heavens, leave Trump alone. What they're insisting upon, acquiescence in the face of an aggressor, is not unlike demanding the Dems adopt the behavior of an abused spouse. Don't leave, don't fight back, don't call the authorities on the abuser, otherwise he'll go crazy. Long ago, the television news media capitulated to the Republicans on the liberal media myth. Partly out of weakness and partly out of fiscal considerations given the rise of the ratings and profit motives in the news. Since then, the approach by many very serious TV pundits is to perpetually caution the Democrats against getting tough on the Republicans, otherwise the Republicans will squawk. At the same time, every panel show is stacked toward GOP guests, lopsidedly so. The Republicans have been granted unearned latitude to engage in various forms of awfulness, with impunity in most cases. When the Democrats push back, the TV news gets gun-shy and warns against pushing back. This metastasizes into the conventional wisdom, prompting the Democrats to do exactly that. And when news anchors on television treat a scandal as less serious, voters respond accordingly with frustration and apathy. Then guys like Trump escape full accountability. This is how we get Trumpism and all of its corruption. This is how he keeps getting away with it. Because pursuing that corruption by the other side is seen as frivolous, as if presidential crimes aren't real news, but instead shiny objects for activists and radicals to scream about on the internet. Some scandals might be worthy of the news, but the very same scandals are clearly not serious enough for congressional hearings. By the Democrats, the Republicans can do whatever they want. It's as if TV executives have cast the parts in a show, and when the Democrats step outside of their preordained roles, it throws off the entire dynamic of the TV news narratives. The problem here is this. The old scripts and the old narratives are irrelevant now. This is a national emergency. It's a crisis so immense, it's difficult to fully encapsulate how much danger we're truly facing by this president and his insanity. The Democrats who will control the House committees, especially Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee and Jerry Nadler and the Judiciary Committee, have a responsibility to guard the nation against Trump's recklessness. This is basic checks and balances, the oversight duties of Congress. Without these checks, Trump will continue to trample over the rule of law, consolidating his nefariously gained power and advancing closer to fascist dictatorship. Wednesday afternoon, Trump fired Jeff Sessions, throwing the entire Mueller investigation into jeopardy. Now, Matthew Whitaker, Trump's hand-picked acting attorney general, has the power to not only fire Mueller, but to burn with fire any report Mueller issues about the president's crimes, including Wednesday's obvious obstruction of justice. According to Michael Steele and Brian Williams, should the Democrats ignore this and refuse to hold hearings and instead focus on reaching out to Trump? We can assume so, and it'd be a disaster. Not only would this widen Trump's latitude to do more, but Trump would humiliate the Democrats in the process. As Rick Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies. He's not to be trusted. He deserves only harsh treatment commensurate with his crimes. The Democrats, meanwhile, have no intention to hulk out and suddenly play Trump's game. Does anyone really believe Adam Schiff or Maxine Waters or Elijah Cummings will start holding rallies and name-calling on Twitter? 
I'm reasonably confident the House Dems will continue to act like the adults in the room, but in the face of Trump, they'll take an appropriately hard-nosed adversarial posture, as they should. This is a pivotal moment in American history. Do not listen to the cable news people who warn of dire repercussions should the Democrats check Trump's advance toward despotism if it's not already too late. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Lots of people don't vote in midterm elections, especially younger voters. Barack Obama proved young people could be engaged and make a difference at the polls. Even in Richard Nixon's day, it was the political clout of young people that prompted Nixon to end the military draft. But this year was different. Initially motivated by the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, this year's youth activism expanded into getting other young Americans registered to vote. That movement alone registered 50,000 new voters in the final days of the campaign. Some of those new voters have also become active in politics. Quoting Parkland survivor Emma Gonzalez, vote in every election like it's your last because it very well could be. Young women watched the rise of the Me Too movement. Young people saw in play philosophies with which they deeply disagree. They had seen the consequences of not voting in 2016, and according to at least one of them, they are embarrassed about their lapse of involvement. After Trump and Charlottesville and a tax cut for the rich and Brett Kavanaugh, younger voters decided to come off the bench. 40% of 18 to 29-year-olds said they would definitely vote in this election, and it appears that they did. Their approval rating for Trump is 26%. Their top concern is the treatment of refugees and immigrants, followed by jobs and health care. Young voters say they are now woke. It means something that so many younger candidates were on the ballot. People as young as their late 20s, early 30s, and some of them won too. And since the minority population of this country is much bigger among young voters than it is among older voters, it means something that there are so many minority candidates on the ballot. 1,100 were on the ballot to be exact. It was the most diverse field of Democratic candidates ever, including African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanics, Muslim Americans, a South Korean American, an openly gay American, a transgendered American, and over a dozen veterans and teachers. There were nearly 1,500 teachers on the ballot across the country, teachers in one out of every four races. In Oklahoma, where teachers struck last year over low wages, there were five dozen teachers running for office. Quoting one, I'm always telling my students that to change things, they've got to join the revolution. And then I was like, well, I guess I've got to lead it. Quoting an education historian at the University of Maryland, Americans have always looked to schools to fix social problems. It was a hard-fought midterm campaign, not just for those running for office, but for those trying to exercise their constitutional right to vote. And there were hurdles and defeats in the battle to be able to vote. Imagine being an Hispanic voter in El Paso, Texas, and going to the polls, only to see the U.S. Border Patrol conducting a crowd control exercise next door to your neighborhood polling place, an exercise scheduled for Election Day in a mostly Hispanic community. Coincidence? Subtlety is not a trait of the Trump administration. In North Dakota, a judge admitted that a new state law requiring all voters for the first time to have street addresses was worthy of suspicion. 
Conveniently for Republicans, such as those who control the voting in North Dakota, most Native Americans don't or didn't have street addresses. The Spirit Lake tribe challenged that in court. The judge agreed that this law appears to have been the product of anti-democratic intentions, but the judge ruled it's too late to change, too close to an election, and therefore too confusing to change it now. And although the tribes of North Dakota have scrambled to hand out addresses and new ID cards, the judge's ruling meant that thousands of their people would not be allowed to vote against a state government that would not allow them to vote. Judges tend not to make any significant changes to election rules when an election is in its final weeks or week. So... Such was also the case in Kansas, where equally outrageous efforts were underway to suppress the voting of the city's Hispanics, who make up a wide majority of Dodge City's residents. In a town that should, based on the Kansas average, have around 10 polling places, Dodge City has won. It's been in the local civic center for the past 20 years, but this year it was moved a mile outside of town, a mile past the nearest bus stop, and the resistance came to life. People were so outraged, more than 600 of them volunteered to give Hispanic voters rides to the polls. Even city officials were outraged, so much so they extended bus service by a little over a mile to include this new, just-out-of-reach voting location. The ACLU says it will keep fighting to get Dodge more polling places even now that the election's over. And moving the Dodge City polling place was all based on a lie. The county clerk says it had to be moved. For safety reasons, Clerk Debbie Cox said the somewhat centrally located Civic Center would be inaccessible this year because of construction. But there was no construction, and the building continued to be used for other things before, during, and after Election Day. Cox said the location should be moved in case of icy weather in that big, spacious parking lot. At the new location, people on foot had to cross a highway to get there. And then the county clerk sent out notices to new voters containing the wrong address for voting. Although she says she didn't mean anything by it, Cox wrote LOL about all of this in an email to the man who oversees elections in Kansas, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who also happened to be the Republican who was running for governor. On Kobach's watch, Kansas has become the ninth hardest state in the union in which to vote, even as the number of registered voters in the Sunflower State grew by 46,000 in the past few years, Kobach has closed more than 100 polling places. And he's been getting help from like-minded county officials like Debbie Cox. In suburban Kansas City's Wyandotte County, members of the Hispanic community were told they can vote at the police station. It was late spring when Kobach was found in contempt of court for failing to notify previously disqualified voters that they were now eligible again. The judge also threw out Kobach's proof of citizenship rule for Kansas voters and ordered him, Kobach, to go back to school for another six hours of classes. The number one issue this year among Kansas voters is education. Kobach instead ran on hot-button issues like abortion and guns and the voter fraud that is statistically non-existent. And he lost. In a state, Trump had won by 21 points. Astoundingly, the red state of Kansas flipped its governorship to blue along with a major congressional district. But nowhere did so many people face voting challenges as in Georgia, where there, too, the man in charge of elections was a Republican candidate for governor named Brian Kemp. A woman who had voted in 2008, but not since, 
found her name had been removed from the voter registration rolls. A man got moved to the list of pending voters because a clerk for the county didn't see the hyphen in his name, and Georgia has an exact match law that doesn't allow for missing hyphens or signatures that are not exact duplicates. The man had to get lawyers to restore his place as a registered voter, and there were more than 50,000 others on that same pending list. A dentist in Macon, Georgia, learned he was about to be listed as an inactive voter since he had changed his address and didn't answer the mail from the election commissioner. But this dentist had not moved, not in the past 30 years, and he's voted in every election in Georgia for the past 40 years. On Brian Kemp's watch, over 2 million Georgians have been removed from the list of eligible voters. A tough voter ID law has made getting on the rolls even harder there. As in Kansas, polling places have been moved or shut down entirely. As in Kansas and as in North Dakota, there has been resistance in Georgia, especially in court. And there, too, a judge found one of these new voting laws to be unfairly restrictive. But unlike the judges in North Dakota and Kansas cases, this judge did not think three days before the election was too close or too late. Federal District Judge Eleanor Ross ruled that Georgia's exact match law had to be stopped immediately out of what she called grave concerns about what appeared to be discrimination against minority voters. She also ordered Kemp to let those whose citizenship had been questioned to prove their citizenship more easily. In that moment, tens of thousands of Georgia citizens regained their ability to vote and just in time, perhaps. But Secretary of State and candidate for governor Brian Kemp stood by his policies and refused loud calls for him to recuse himself from oversight of this week's election. In fact, Kemp did what Trump might do, deflect. As Secretary of State, Kemp announced an investigation into what he said was an attempted hacking of the state's voter registration rolls by Democrats. Long accused of suppressing votes, Kemp was now, in the image of Trump, turning around that accusation and accusing the Democrats of suppressing votes. Kemp offered not even a shred of evidence to support his last-minute claim. In fact, there's evidence Kemp learned of the attempted hack from a Democrat who was looking for vulnerabilities in the system and wanted to alert the Secretary of State's office of what he'd found. That person became the target of Kemp's supposed investigation after he had allowed two breaches of the voter registration list just in the last two years. Kemp has also accused the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. I'm sorry. Kemp has also accused the United States Department of Homeland Security of hacking Georgia's voter registration rolls. There were other signs of racism in this election that linger. That story, Trump's escalated war on the media, and the weed vote after this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. No matter what you buy there, your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. And if you shop the new Amazon business, which is also free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I get a small commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button that's just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thanks again. It should also be noted that just before Election Day, we learned that Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach had accepted cash donations from a white nationalist group and that he's been affiliated with such groups for more than 10 years now. 
Newly available numbers show that Kobach, during his voter suppression efforts, accepted thousands of dollars from white nationalists, including from a former Trump administration official who was forced out after his white nationalist connections were uncovered. Kobach was part of an email exchange in which it was explained that a dinner party would be Juden-free, a Nazi term meaning no Jews. Kobach, while getting that white nationalist cash, was also serving as chairman of Trump's now-disbanded election fraud commission. Before this week's voting, Trump was telling his red-hatted crowd that the pipe bombs and the synagogue massacre had, quote, stopped a tremendous momentum in his campaigning for Republican candidates. Meanwhile, a week before the election, a black pastor gave a long and meaningful hug to the conservative rabbi he had just met. It was just a week after the massacre of Jews in Pittsburgh and two years after the slaughter of nine parishioners in that pastor's mostly African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. Blacks, Jews, and others shared a fear of what's to come under Trump. With good reason, says former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Cohen says Trump once told him he'd never get support from African-Americans because, quote, black people are too stupid to vote for me. Cohen says on another matter, Trump challenged him to name, quote, one country run by a black person that's not a shithole. Name one city, added Trump. Former Trump advisor Omarosa Manigault Newman says Trump used the N-word more than once on the set of his TV show, and others have corroborated her claims. Michael Cohen says Trump remarked of one apprentice contestant, there's no way I can let this black effing win. Late in this year's campaign, Trump called the man who is now the state's first African-American governor, quote, a thief and mayor of poorly run Tallahassee, said to be one of the most corrupt cities in the country, exclamation point. Then candidate Gillum responded, I have not called the president a racist, but there are racist in his sympathizers who believe he may be. White nationalists give Trump their support and he gives them political cover. These very fine people. The white nationalist group that attacked Andrew Gillum with racist robocalls in Florida also turned its attention to Georgia, where Stacey Abrams was running to become the nation's first black female governor. When Oprah Winfrey was on her way to Georgia to endorse candidate Abrams, 60-second robocalls went out, voiced by an Oprah impersonator. It said, This is the magical Negro Oprah Winfrey asking you to make my fellow Negress Stacey Adams the governor of Georgia. There was time in that 60 seconds to even throw in an anti-Semitic remark since white nationalists blamed the Jews for the U.S. being, in their minds, overrun by people of color. This fake Oprah goes on to say that Stacey Adams is, quote, a poor man's Aunt Jemima. The call also mocked Oprah's famous, and you get a car, and you get a car, to which Oprah responded, and you get a vote, and you get a vote. A similar call had gone out against Florida's Andrew Gillum before that, as you heard, and in the audio version of Blackface, the voice said, well, hello there, I is Andrew Gillum. White supremacists were donating their money and time to this year's midterm elections and to Chris Kobach, and in some places, it paid off. The overlap of Republicans and racists became apparent all over the country, not just in the president. Trump's agriculture secretary called the Florida vote Cotton picking important. Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King found himself without the support of many others in his party after he met with a far-right Nazi-connected political party in Austria. 
King has drawn consistent praise from former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. A Confederate flag hung above King's desk. It still does and will until his Democratic replacement arrives. Last year, King tweeted, We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. Across the country, Republicans ran in Trump's image with racially charged TV ads, the likes of which we've not seen in more than three decades. Ads that ran in southern Minnesota attacked Jewish billionaire George Soros and African-American athlete Colin Kaepernick and sounded as though they had been written by Trump himself. In a seemingly good economy, with health care number one among voters' priorities, Trump and the Republican Party desperately put their money on race and fear. In a society that's far more diverse than their party, that could have been a suicide play. Days before the election, the percentage of voters who are Republican had already shrunk to under 30%. And 10% of that group does not support Donald Trump. And yet, these Trump-alike candidates followed their leader into racially divisive ads and speeches. Trump kept ramping it up as well, especially about the people fleeing the violence in Honduras walking toward the U.S. Some carry their children in their arms to get them away from the violence back home. Some push strollers. Some are pregnant, and some have given birth along the way. They're walking in torn sneakers and flip-flops, or in some cases, with just bandages on their feet. Upon the migrants' arrival there, Mexico City offered them aid and shelter. The Mexican government has invited thousands of the asylum seekers to stay and offered to help them find jobs. And the Mexican government has refused, meanwhile, to provide the refugees transportation, including buses, despite conservative claims to the contrary, you may have heard. More lies. Trump claimed the country was being invaded, not only with unwanted immigrants, but by criminals and Middle Easterners, and that it all may have been funded by George Soros, while none of those things are true. If you don't want America to be overrun by masses of illegal aliens and giant caravans, you better vote Republican, Trump said to one of his many rallies before the vote. The Pentagon obeyed its orders from Trump to send more than 5,000 additional soldiers to the border, but reportedly cringed at Trump's insistence they build new tent cities to house those that Trump expected to be arrested. Trump had, after all, promised last week to build tent cities for these invaders. But the military cannot legally enforce U.S. laws of any kind, including immigration laws, and today's army doesn't want any part of holding migrants prisoner. Besides, in terms of the nation's safety, there will be no invasion. Troops are not. But Trump was stoking the fear right up to Election Day, posting a racist video that blames Democrats for a twice-deported Mexican who'd killed two cops in California four years ago. The ad makes the convicted killer appear to be the face of the migrant caravan. The implication, more cop killers are coming. And the ad ends with, who else will the Democrats let in? Trump not only posted that racist video on his Twitter feed, but kept it pinned to the top of his page for more than two days. NBC and Fox News Channel both ran the ad, but then both networks pulled it. CNN refused to air it in the first place. It was red meat, this ad was, on Twitter for neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and racists. I love it, tweeted one, adding, we should be making videos like these. America's haters and hate groups were energized thanks to a tweet from this president.
in his image, anti-caravan ads were also run by a Republican Senate candidate in Tennessee and by a gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. A California congressman called his opponent a national security threat because of the opponent's grandfather supposedly having connections to an Islamic terror group. A congressman from Georgia posted a Facebook ad in which he promises to protect Georgia from violent criminal gangs. The video features three Latino men with tattoos. A migrant caravan was coming, but the ad was racist by all accounts, and it was also a lie. The ad claimed of the cop killer, Democrats let him into our country, Democrats let him stay, untrue. The killer had been deported under both Republican and Democratic presidents, and he last entered the U.S. during the George W. Bush administration. He got married in Arizona and was arrested on drug charges in Phoenix, but was then arrested for unknown reasons by the office of then-Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Convicted of killing two officers, Luis Bracamontes was imprisoned four years ago during the Obama presidency, and he is awaiting the death penalty. This ad was not only racist, it was a lie from top to bottom. In Idaho, meanwhile... 14 elementary school teachers were suspended with pay this past week after dressing up as stereotypical Mexicans and as border walls that read, Make America Great Again. The superintendent says there will be no further discipline since he believes the teachers just used poor judgment and had no malicious intent. And the Motel 6 chain this week was forced to fork over nearly $7 million to settle an invasion of privacy lawsuit filed by Hispanic guests at an Arizona location who found out their personal information had been turned over to immigration by Motel 6. Trump's recent out-of-the-closet embrace of nationalism and apparent racial nationalism fired up some Republican voters, but it was repulsive to others, especially the women. Just as some Democrats voted for Trump in 2016, a growing number of Republicans were finding his nationalist rhetoric to be a red line not to be crossed. What started as secret wives clubs in places like Houston, Texas, and Orange County, California went public to cancel out the votes of their Trump-supporting husbands. These Republican women say they would have voted Republican this time if George W. Bush were still president, but not this guy, not him. And even if most Republican voters didn't turn away from Trump in the wake of that rhetoric, enough did to chisel another chunk away from the Trump party. And it helped Democrats win the House. The U.S. military, as it does in all situations, began assessing the threats and the risks of Trump's so-called caravan as it prepared to obey the commander-in-chief's orders to march to the border of the United States. The military found very little threat to the nation, estimating that only 20% of the 7,000 migrants would even make it to the border. That's about 1,400 people. Trump is sending up to 15,000 troops to help the border patrol that's there and the 2,000 National Guardsmen already there to stop 1,400 of your tired and your poor. They do not appear to be violent as Trump has described them. The military threat assessment by the Pentagon shows nothing to support Trump's claim of unknown Middle Easterners in that crowd, or his hardened criminals in that crowd for that matter, and none of the very tough fighters Trump says are among those walking to the land of the free. In sending in the army, made Trump's lie expensive for taxpayers. Trump's deployment of the military for an invasion that isn't coming will cost well over $200 million by the end of the year. 
and this 15,000 troop deployment, about the same number we have in Afghanistan, gets exponentially more expensive as it extends into next year. And it comes just as the Trump administration was pressuring the Pentagon to cut its budget by $33 billion because of the deficit created by the Republican tax cut for the rich and corporations. And the Pentagon says it is already overextended on soldiers. But sending in the army was Trump's October surprise. And his nationalism was no longer just rhetoric. The military, along with the Border Patrol, has another assessment that the greatest concern is about the armed vigilantes here in the U.S. who are also headed to the border to help Trump stop the invasion that isn't. The vigilantes are carrying not just tents and coolers, but guns and drones. Trump had said he wants the troops to fire their weapons if any of the migrants throw rocks. And now, thousands of soldiers, the Border Patrol, and bands of vigilantes are off to greet a thousand refugees, Trump's thugs and very tough fighters. What could possibly go wrong? The military deployment comes not because of any risk to the nation, but because of the threat to Donald Trump's presidency at the hands of a newly elected Democratic House. It was important to Trump that the troops get to the border and put up that 250 miles of razor wire before the election, even though the refugees are at least still 10 days away and maybe another month away if they take the less treacherous route. So between five and 15,000 troops will cool their heels for up to a month waiting for 1,400 unarmed people to arrive. At least four former generals have expressed worry that Trump's border mission uses troops as a political tool and that to do so is as wasteful and risky as it is just plain wrong. This could not have been easy for Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who resisted Trump politicizing the military until this week. Not until this highly questionable order from his commander-in-chief. Mattis has, however, now stripped the operation of its original official name of Operation Faithful Patriot. Instead, the operation now has no name. And then there's the lying. I'm the only one that tells you the facts, Trump told one of his many pre-election rallies. He told an ABC interviewer, when I can, I tell the truth. I always like to be truthful. Add those to the list. The Washington Post's fact-checker reports that in the seven weeks leading up to the election, the president made 1,419 false or misleading statements. That puts his recent average at 30 falsehoods or lies every day. It's worth noting that the number of these kinds of statements during the campaign is greater than the number of whoppers told since the day he was sworn in. More lies in seven weeks than in the first nine months of his presidency when the average was around just five a day. Ah, simpler times. Trump had, after all, spoken publicly more, and the more he talked, the more disinformation he spread. In just one of those pre-election days, Trump failed to tell the truth 83 times. 83 lies in one day. The cheering crowds and even quiet interviews with Trump supporters prove they don't care about his words. They believe his overall message is the truth. Others put their faith in the free press. Your first defense against tyranny. 
The New York Times added nearly a quarter million subscribers in the third quarter of this year, bringing its total to above four million. This is Trump's failing New York Times we're talking about here. It was the paper's biggest bump since the fourth quarter of 2016 when Trump was elected. Over these two years, the more falsehoods the president spoke, the more people went searching for a clearer view. Trump, meanwhile, has stepped up his war on the free press, banning CNN's White House correspondent Jim Acosta. In a fiery news conference yesterday, Trump tore into Acosta, calling him terrible and CNN an enemy of the people. Trump also tore into NBC's White House correspondent Peter Alexander with similar insults. Trump clashed with reporters at least seven times in that news conference. He told a female African-American to sit down. He accused a PBS correspondent of asking a racist question. CNN responded to all this by calling Trump's treatment of the media disturbingly un-American. Trump blamed Yahoo News for causing division in this country. And he blamed the media overall for the tone of discussions in this country. Trump was on the warpath because he's angry and because he's scared. Thousand Oaks, California, is ranked as one of the safest towns in America. But this country's plague of gun violence ripped through a bar there this morning, and 13 people are dead. A gunman, motive unknown, shot to death the bouncer at the door and fired into the club's dance floor, killing a dozen people. He threw smoke bombs as he reloaded his semi-automatic rifle and also killed a sheriff's deputy. The gunman is also dead, and this is all we knew about this story as this report was published. The good economic news for Americans is that wages are growing by more than 3% for the first time in eight years, and that's considered an encouraging sign of what's to come. It's good news, not great news, because 3.1% is well below the normal 35 to 4% we should be seeing, and it's but a mere fraction of the growth in corporate profits. Wage growth is now just about where it was in 2006. Congratulations. But today, record corporate profits while the workers get a 3% bump. Between the slightly lower taxes for most people and the slightly higher wages of the Trump administration, the average middle-income family is raking in an extra $122 a month at a time when gas prices are going up. All prices are going up. Inflation and higher interest rates have cut into that 3% wage increase, leaving workers with less than 1% increase in their standard of living while corporations rake in record profits. Quoting a Federal Reserve Bank blog, never have corporate profits outgrown employee compensation so clearly and for so long. Our jobs numbers, stock market, gross domestic product, and corporate profits are breaking records. Most Americans are just getting by paying bills and taxes. You can't eat the gross domestic product. Trump reportedly hated a $6 million Republican TV ad that touted the economy and decided to post that racist TV ad about immigrants instead. And the top White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, was saying that a federal minimum wage is silly and a terrible idea, and that he would not work with Democrats to raise the existing, outdated national minimum wage. Kudlow says he would advise states against having their own minimum wages, but he conceded that's their call. Many states and localities have established their own minimums after Republicans in Congress refused to raise the national minimum, as was once common. As for Trump's trade war, the U.S. deficit with China grew last month to its highest level in seven months, and the U.S. is on track to post its biggest trade deficit in history.
and we're now importing more stuff, not less. Uncertainty about the outcome. Uncertainty about the outcome of this week's election got the blame for Wall Street having its worst October in years. It recovered 500 points after the election. Corporations have thrived under the Trump administration through tax cuts, deregulation, and a blind eye to some big corporate transgressions. Toward the end of the Obama administration, the feds were pressuring Walmart to pay a billion dollars to settle a charge of foreign bribery. That went away when Trump was sworn in. Barclays Bank was about to have to pay $7 billion to settle claims it had sold toxic mortgage investments that helped tank the U.S. economy in 2008. Well, the heat is off on Barclays Bank now under Trump. In this administration, we've seen a 62% drop in profits surrendered to the Securities and Exchange Commission. SEC penalties are down about 75%. A 72% decline in corporate penalties from the Justice Department in civil and criminal cases. And corporate profits are at record levels. Some corporations will not be happy about the Supreme Court decision to let a case on climate change go forward. It's a unique case brought by a coalition of young people to try to force the federal government to take action on climate change. A lawsuit they filed during the Obama administration, uh, but has since become even more relevant. These 21 young people argue that the government failure to fight climate change violates their constitutional right to a clean environment. It's an unprecedented case, citing the rights to due process and equal protection under the law. The Supreme Court okayed the lawsuit, despite repeated objections from both the Obama and Trump administrations. Kids won, government nothing. Environmental groups were very much involved in the congressional campaigns this fall. One such group said it would spend over $80 million on Democratic candidates by Election Day, twice what it had spent in 2016. And that's just one of a handful of conservationist and environmentalist organizations donating to campaigns this year. But when Washington state voters went to the polls this week, they rejected a plan to fight climate change through a carbon tax. So the struggle to save the planet remains an uphill climb. Among the most important issues to be voted on this week was one in Florida. It was the two-thirds majority vote to allow convicted felons who've paid their debts to society to vote. The law preventing that was not only unfair to all who've spent time behind bars, but unfair most especially to African Americans and Hispanics who are disproportionately imprisoned. What it means for the future of Florida and for the nation is monumental. It cannot be underscored enough. The addition of those who've paid their debts will boost the population of Florida's Democratic voters by nearly 10%. Had that change already been made, Andrew Gillum would be the new governor of Florida today. Florida, for all the bashing it took for losing those Senate and governor's races, just did the rest of the nation's Democrats a big favor in tipping future elections a bit more blue. Florida voters also put an end to Greyhound dog racing. Three Republican states this week voted to expand Medicaid in compliance with the Affordable Care Act their party has opposed. Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah joined 31 other states in Medicaid expansion. And with a Democratic governor in Kansas now, it may soon be the 37th state out of our 50 to hop on the Obamacare bandwagon. In the red states of Arkansas and Missouri, they voted to raise the minimum wage. Missouri also voted to strengthen labor and to legalize medical marijuana. 
Voters in four states chose to relax their state's marijuana laws. Michigan and North Dakota voted to legalize recreational use. Utah joined Missouri in approving medical, but North Dakota rejected the legalization of recreational weed in the end. New Jersey lawmakers promised to address this matter before the end of this year. Massachusetts voters, meanwhile, decided to keep discrimination protections for transgendered people despite a fear-mongering campaign to scrap that law. Boy Scouts versus Girl Scouts. Don't eat raw slugs and the dead guy wins. In the third and final segment, up next. It's so surprising to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35. You've seen it. A bald spot pops up, the creeping hairline. What's that going to look like a year from now? two years from now. You want to keep the hair you have for as long as possible. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Uh, Pro tip, uh, don't buy the snake oil at convenience stores. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more with advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, at a fraction of the usual cost. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster it's a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website's amazing. Order now. My listeners get a one-month trial of Hims for just 5 bucks while supplies last. That includes a consultation. You'll save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. See their website for details. Order right now. 4 slash BBNC. That's 4 slash BBNC. During the production of this program, we received the breaking news that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has fallen and fractured three ribs uh, and that she is now hospitalized at the age of 85. We will, of course, be watching this story closely. The CDC this week confirmed eight new cases of acute flaccid myelitis, the polio-like disease that struck 80 people so far, the vast majority of them children. The CDC is now investigating 215 suspected cases of AFM, which can weaken and or paralyze muscles, but it strikes fewer than one in a million people. Symptoms include drooping face or eyelids, slurred speech, and difficulty in swallowing. And do not let them eat cake. Duncan Hines has recalled several cake mixes due to possible salmonella poisoning. The classic white, classic yellow, classic butter golden, and signature confetti with an expiration date of March 2019 are being recalled after five people got ill. The CDC and FDA are investigating. The FDA is outlawing the use of lead in hair dyes starting a year from now. Until then, lead is the only known neurotoxin used in cosmetic products. Lead acetate is primarily used in products to darken gray hair, especially Grecian formula. But in the middle of a severe opioid crisis, the FDA also this week approved a new drug that's a thousand times more powerful than fentanyl. Desuvia, say critics, could be a danger to public health, although officials say it won't be stocked at pharmacies, but mostly used by the Pentagon, which helped develop the drug for wounded soldiers. Critics say the Pentagon already has fentanyl. But worry lingers about the drug somehow making it into the streets. According to the head of opioid policy research at Brandeis University, there is absolutely no need for this product, which he says will kill people needlessly. I know 
how you feel, said the machine. Neuroscience researchers say they found a way to accurately measure a person's pain level. Doctors would no longer have to rely only on your answer to what's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 or ask you to pick a yellow face icon that best suits how you feel. The new method uses an electroencephalograph machine, and the real reason it's being developed is to help researchers find the right kinds and types of meds for the right kinds of pain. They hope to find the right meds and dosages for people with chronic pain. And this technology could be very helpful in diagnosing children or anyone who can't communicate how they feel. The veterinary industry has now shown a keen interest in this machine that knows how you feel. And if they dared you to jump off a cliff, would you? In Australia, a man has died after taking a dare eight years ago. At 27, Sam Ballard was a promising rugby player. But at age 19, he and some friends got drunk on wine in a garden, and Sam spotted a garden slug and asked the gang if he should eat it. They dared him to do it, and so he did. On the slug, unbeknownst to him, was a roundworm parasite known as a rat lungworm. It's found on rodents and on slugs and snails and sometimes on vegetables. Do not eat uncooked, free-range slugs or snails or rats in case this ever comes up. Canada already has a big problem with legalized marijuana. There's not enough of it to go around. Demand was much higher than expected, and supplies have dried up. Stores have been forced to close or turn away customers for lack of inventory. And some Canadians had put their life savings into these new retail shops. Quoting one suffering owner, We were told there would be bumps in the road. This is a pothole. Colorado feels Canada's pain. It took Colorado suppliers three years to finally catch up with demand. In the meantime, says that beleaguered retailer, now that we can't supply them, they're still going to find it. There's no shortage of weed in Labrador City, just the legal stuff. It was on the last day of October that the Mexican Supreme Court legalized all forms of marijuana for all forms of non-commercial adult use. That leaves the United States as the only nation in North America where marijuana remains illegal, at least federally and in many states. The following day, Mexico's new president announced big changes in the country's overall drug policy in the interest of fighting organized crime under a skyrocketing murder rate. Quoting a presidential spokesman, the prohibitionist approach has failed. So in the end, Horton, with his big elephant ears, hears the Who's down in Whoville shouting as one, We are here, we are here, here on Earth. Scientists have found a new way to reach out in case there's anyone out there. After sending out radio signals and launching discs full of earthling music and speech, the folks at MIT propose building a big laser to beam into space using a telescope to amplify it. And even beings light years away, should they exist, should be able to see a beacon that is ten times brighter than our sun. And although it'll take a few years to get out there, the light can theoretically be seen 20,000 light years away. It'll be aimed at stars that seem most likely to have life in orbit around them, saying, we are here, we are here. A sure sign of the apocalypse 
is the Girl Scouts fighting the Boy Scouts. The girls are dragging BSA into court, accusing the now co-ed Boy Scouts of copyright infringement. Girl Scouts of America says the public will be misled into thinking the two groups have merged now that the Boy Scouts of America is accepting girls and changing its name to Scouts BSA. And the girls group says it wants a jury trial. GSA has just under 2 million members. BSA has just under 2.5 million. A movie about Freddie Mercury, the late frontman for Queen, sucked him into theaters this week. Bohemian Rhapsody opened with $50 million in ticket sales, nearly covering its production cost in the first week out. The movie that was to have starred Sasha Baron Cohen before he backed out got mediocre reviews from critics, but moviegoers exit polled gave it an A. The Nutcracker and the Four Realms opened in second with $20 million. A Star is Born slipped only a notch to fourth place, while its soundtrack remains number one for the third week in a row. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, just click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com or use my Amazon link for your music purchases. Thank you for coming to Lowe's. The one that sells home improvement stuff is shutting down 51 of its stores in North America with 20 to close in the U.S. and 31 to close in Canada. Most of the stores to close will be within 10 miles of another Lowe's and they'll be shut down by February 1st. But the remaining stores will be also cutting their inventories. Lowe's has struggled to keep up with Home Depot. A baggage handler in Kansas City has been suspended and is under investigation after falling asleep in a pressurized cargo hold in Kansas City and finding himself in Chicago when he was awakened. Alcohol may have been involved. But a drunk pilot for Japan Airlines has led to new rules about alcohol consumption by all the country's airline employees. In the U.S., sobriety tests are administered to pilots by government officers. In Japan, up until this drunk pilot incident, the government let the airlines handle the testing themselves. The 42-year-old pilot had consumed two bottles of wine and five cans of beer in the hours before the flight from Britain to Tokyo. He was beyond legally drunk. A bus driver at Heathrow smelled the alcohol and called it in. The airline has now doubled in length the time span that a pilot can drink before a flight. In this country, it was Delta Airlines doing the apologizing. In Michigan, a man boarded a Delta flight to Atlanta and discovered he was sitting in dog poop. A service dog on a previous flight had gotten ill, and the cleanup crew that rushes through between flights missed it? The man says he had to sit on a blanket for the rest of the flight and deal with the smell. Delta says the plane was taken out of service in Miami and was deep cleaned and disinfected. And it promises to do a better job of catching these things in time in the future. Delta says it has now tried to make things right with the poor passenger offering a refund and a little something extra. Maybe something you'll like this time. In Detroit, we can tell from the security footage that a dog left home alone went to the stove and turned it on. On top of the stove was a 12-pack of carbonated soft drinks, which exploded one by one as they expanded from the heat. Except for the sodas, there was no damage. One morning in the Philippines this week, a man boarded the bus he takes to work. His dog, who loves him dearly, missed his human friend. 
So the dog went to the bus stop, sat on the bench like his owner, and waited for the next bus. When the bus pulled up, Vince, the dog, boarded it by himself, took a seat, and watched out the window for his owner as the bus carried him closer. With slim chance Vince knew which stop to request or be able to ring the bell, it's fortunate a woman on the bus recognized Vince, and after the bus dropped them off near a truck, Vince and his owner's friend headed back to Vince's house. The odd death of the Nevada brothel owner who became a reality TV star on HBO's Cat House has gotten even odder. Dennis Hoff, who was found dead last month by former porn star Ron Jeremy, has won a seat in the state legislature as a Republican candidate in a heavily Republican district. He won the election a month after he died Hoff, when he was alive, was a friend of disgraced Sheriff Joe Arpaio and a friend of Donald Trump. Hoff and Ron Jeremy had just met with Arpaio at a political rally the night before the body was discovered and after a weekend of parties celebrating Hoff's 72nd birthday. Hoff had been accused of sexual assault at least four times, most recently in September. In Richmond, Virginia, a Republican who'd claimed to be a devotee of Bigfoot erotica won a seat in the United States Congress on Tuesday. Denver Riggleman says he wrote the book The Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him as a joke for his friends. Our highway spill of the week involved an overturned big rig that spilled prescription pills and syringes all over State Highway 105 just east of the Texas town of Cut and Shoot. The drugs were reportedly collected and returned to their distributor, but the spill kept the cleanup crew up all night. In Germany, two men have been convicted of stealing portable toilets. The two men were tried in Dusseldorf but got suspended sentences after they confessed to stealing the porta potties to sell them equals profit. They confessed to stealing more than 100 portable toilets, only three of which have been recovered so far. And finally, rescuers say a fisherman in Scotland will be fine even after falling off a large cliff. They knew they should rush to his aid when he called them with his cell phone to explain his dangerous predicament. The man was cornered, about to be forced off the cliff by a band of about 50 adorable gray seals and their pups. The seal succeeded. The poor fisherman was sealed with a cliff... I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.